the things that might not be clear to us, that it may take root in our hearts and bear fruit in our lives according to your good purposes. So may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. How many of you have watched Taken, uh, the movie? Any of you? One person in, in person. Online, probably a few more. Lah. Okay. Uh, th this is a movie starring Liam Neeson. And if you've never watched it, it's about a girl who's kidnapped while she's on vacation in France. Okay. And it's up to her father who overhears her abduction uh, over the phone because she was on a call with him. It's up to her father to rescue her. Her father is an ex-CIA operative, okay? So he can do all the punch-punch the punch and the shoot-shoot and, you know, all the, the pro stuff. So the movie follows the, the father on his quest to get his daughter back. But the girl, if you watch the entire movie, you, see, you follow the exploits of Liam Neeson's character. I think his, his character's name was Brian. Uh, you follow the exploits of Brian and not his daughter. Okay? The girl is held captive for the entire movie. She's helpless. She's waiting to be rescued. Now, this is a very common plot for many movies and even video games, right? The princess is captured and, oh, now you need to go to the castle and rescue her, right? She's helpless. She cannot do anything until she's rescued. Now, last week... Brother Gamliang shared about how the Israelites were defeated by the Philistines and in an attempt to win the war, they brought the Ark of the Covenant, which is the uh, gold box that symbolized God's presence, okay? And it was meant for worship, not war, okay? And they, they brought this Ark of the Covenant with them uh, to their next battle with the Philistines. But they still were defeated. God allowed them to be defeated. And the Philistines captured the ark and brought it back to one of their five major cities, Philistine cities, uh, known as the city of Ashdod. So there's been a capture of something very valuable. And uh, when something valuable is taken, what happens next? Well, according to all the movies and all the games, you would expect that uh, a rescue mission would be mounted, like, um, actually, not too long after in 1 Samuel chapter 30, David and his men would return to the town of Ziklag where they were, and they would find that all their wives and children were kidnapped by the Amalekites. They were captured, and they mounted a rescue operation like Liam Neeson to get them back. Okay, so you, you would expect something like this to happen, uh, if something so as, as valuable as the Ark of the Covenant, which is the only symbol of God's presence in their midst, in the midst of the Israelite people, uh, if something as valuable as that was taken from them. But no, that's not what happens. They don't mount a rescue mission to get it back. What happens follows in chapter 5, 1 Samuel chapter 5, is totally different. And for once, the story doesn't revolve around the, the, the rescuer who goes through all the bad guys trying to get the princess back. But for once, the story revolves around the captive. Uh, I use air quotes because 
God was not actually captured. Lah, okay? So he, the, the box symbolizes his presence. God is not contained inside the box. He's not sitting in the box. Okay? He's not trapped inside the box. The, 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 the box just symbolizes his presence. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's everywhere all the time. Okay? So God had not been captured. But the Philistines would have thought like that, that they had indeed captured God. Okay, so that brings us to our big idea today, that God is and always will remain victorious. Okay, so this is our takeaway message. You forget everything. This is one thing to remember. God is and always will remain victorious. I'd like to highlight three things we can observe from today's passage. Firstly, the futility of idolatry. Now, the national god of the Philistines was a god named Dagon. Okay, he was a, a god that people worshipped in ancient Mesopotamia since 2500 BC. He is thought to be the father of Baal. Baal is another god of the Canaanites that we see more often uh, interacting with uh, Elijah and you know, all the other um, parts of the Old Testament. But Dagon is the father of Baal, uh, thought to be the father of Baal, and so he's one of the main gods of the Canaanites. And it was often thought that Dagon was sort of a, a merman god, okay, that he was half man, half fish, okay, because the Hebrew word dag means fish. <laughs> uh, but many modern scholars dispute this interpretation. They say, you know, actually dag means corn, uh, and so he's a grain god, or maybe he's a storm god. Either way, he was a god that was worshipped back then, and he was a big deal. If you look at Judges chapter 16, verse 30, uh, you actually see his name again, this, this name of Dagon, because it's actually a temple of Dagon that Samson brings down with him. You know, when Samson is captured and they, they put his eyes out, and then just as he's about to... He's, He's taken to the temple of Dagon as a trophy so people can mock him and all that. And then he prays to God for his strength to come back. And he pushes the pillars, the whole temple comes down. That's the temple of Dagon. Okay? So this Dagon isn't just some village idol. He's not just some small you know, thing that people in the area worship. He's a major god for the Philistines. You imagine uh, the, the national religion <laughs> who have revolved around this God. Now, idols were ways for humans to interact with the ancient gods that they believed in, and these idols would often be treated as gods themselves. So the way a person uh, bowed to an idol or offered uh, things to the idol, they, they expected the, the idol to represent the god, and, and they would treat the idol like a god. But here's the problem. These gods were not real, and the only power that they had was in the minds of those who believed in them. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 9 to 20, spells out a very long passage uh, that, that unpacks the futile logic of idol worship from an idol maker's point of view, the, the person who makes the idols. And it says, All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind, they are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit nothing? 
People who do that will be put to shame. Such craftsmen are only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and shame. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line, makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and makes it with compasses. He shapes it in human form, human form in all its glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars, or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest, or planted a pine, and the rain made it grow. It is used as fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm, I see the fire. From the rest, he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see, and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say. Half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, Is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Okay, so that whole passage from Isaiah is basically him pointing out the folly of idol worship where the, the idol maker, the blacksmith and the carpenter, they are humans, they are limited, they depend on the resources that is provided uh, by rain and by trees, and then they make a god and they worship that god to do the things that they had already um, done themselves. So we see this same sort of futility of idol worship in today's passage in 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 3. You see, when the, the, when the Philistines had captured the ark, they brought it into the temple of Dagon, and when they arose, the, the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, they found that Dagon was fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. But here's the thing I wanted to highlight. Uh, we'll, we'll talk more about the falling down before the ark of the Lord later. But the thing I wanted to highlight is that the people of Ashdod had to put their God back in his place. Okay, and that, that, as I was preparing, this sentence just jumped out at me that they worshipped this God, but he had fallen down. They had to pick him up and put him back in his place. Okay? Because the idol was powerless to pick itself up. But the deceit of worshipping something that isn't real is not the reason for why idolatry is such an offence to God. We know that throughout Israel's history, one of Israel's major sins and flaws and, and things that made God so upset and uh, heartbroken was their idolatry. 
but it's not because they were worshipping something that was not truly a god. You see, if you look at the second commandment of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, it prohibits making idols, right? But it's also closely tied to the first commandment of not having any other gods before the Lord. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And then that is followed by the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an image or an idol in the form of anything, okay? So the true issue behind idolatry is not really about the, that object and whether it's real or whether it's not. Uh, does it really have power? Can it really save you? That is not the real issue of idolatry. The true issue behind idolatry is putting something else in God's place. That's why the definition of idolatry goes beyond statues, pictures, and the things that uh, we usually associate with uh, in, in Asia, okay, the, the, the idols that are worshipped by other religions. Uh, idolatry goes beyond that. It is particular, particularly relevant to us as Asians because we, we see it around us. Some of us come from that background. Okay? But idolatry goes beyond statues. It goes beyond uh, images, when we respect or give something or someone more honour than God, that is idolatry. When we trust and depend on something or someone else more than God and we look to them for security, that is idolatry. When we love and value something or someone else more than God and we cherish it and we are devoted to it more than God, that is idolatry. And so putting anything else in the place that God deserves as number one in our lives, that is idolatry. In fact, when we consider our sinful and selfish appetites over God and we desire to always chase after uh, our, the, the things that we want all the time, according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, that is idolatry. And so the premise of any sort of idol worship always revolves around selfish motives, wanting to serve the self. People look to idols not because they just want to worship it and, oh, it looks like it needs to be worshipped or I, I should be worshipping it because it's the right thing to do. People look to idols for prosperity, for protection, for preservation, and it's all rooted in benefiting self. Chinese New Year is around the corner, Gyeonghi Huat Chai, right? And I'm pretty sure that during this season, there's, a, there's quite a lot of people going to the temple, uh, making offerings to idols over this period. I'm very sure that the majority of them, at least, are not doing that with the hopes of getting nothing in return for their devotion, that they just want to go and offer things because they felt like offering. I'm pretty sure that there was, there's always this hope of, okay, I'm going to be prosperous in return. I'm going to be blessed with prosperity. I'm going to be blessed with good health and protection. I'm going to be blessed with uh, a good job and, and steady income. And so every sin, not just idolatry, but every sin can be traced back to the self of wanting to always be obsessed about the self. 
But anything that we have made into an idol in our lives will fail us. It doesn't matter whether it's something sinful and destructive, like an addiction or an unhealthy relationship that we have turned into an idol, or it also doesn't matter if it's something good and God created and God ordained, like work or family or you know, uh, even our, our religious rituals. All these things that we have turned into idols in replacement of God will ultimately fail us when we put our hope and trust in them. Why? Because they are not God. And in this broken and sinful world, only God never fails. Everything else will fail us at some point or another. I mean, as, as much as we love one another and as much as we treasure and value one another, uh, even if you have the best relationship with your spouse, eventually their life will come to an end and they won't be there forever to, to uh, never fail you. And so everything in this world is finite and will eventually fail us. And so friends, if you have treasured or trusted or treated something or someone uh, as to be more than the Lord and it has become your idol, I challenge you to realize that they can and will ultimately let you down in some way. Not because they're necessarily bad, but simply because they are not perfectly good like God is. Let's spend some moments reflecting on this question. Sorry, it's a bit small, but let me read it for you. What are some possible idols in your life that you may need to address? And so I encourage you to just spend some time reflecting on this question. Uh, and if the Lord brings anything to your mind about any possible idols you might have in your life, prayer, prayer of confession and repentance. And for the children, is there something that is more important to you than loving and obeying God? And so for parents, if they, they do have something, uh, I invite you to lead your child in a prayer of confession and repentance as well. Okay, so... This, this is a, a question for us to reflect on our own. Okay, we have two minutes.
Let's move on to our second point. Okay. And our second point is that God is superior over all other powers. Now, during that time, the, the belief was that victory in battle meant superiority of one nation's God over another nation's God. And so if you fought a battle and one nation defeated the other nation, this nation that won has a better God than the nation that was defeated. Okay, and so we need to remember also that in the case of the Israelites, they had gone the extra mile to bring the Ark of God into their camp for battle. And so they had, they had used the Ark of God like, like a good luck charm, right? And, oh, our God is now here in our, in our midst and we are going to win this battle because of Him. Uh, whether or not it was His will, that's another thing. And so they had brought this symbol of God's presence into their camp for battle. And so the Philistines believed that the Israelite God had come into their camp. They literally said, oh no, a God has come to the Israelite camp. And the fact that they won, they fought and won, meant that they would have believed that they had defeated the Israelites while their God was with them. And so this God is not so powerful. This God is this God let them let them down, right? Because he's not powerful enough. And so he's not a very great God. So it was sometimes also a practice that after a battle, the carved image of a defeated nation's God would be placed in the temple of the victorious the victorious nation's God to symbolize its inferiority. So it's a bit like a trophy, a war trophy. You defeated this nation, their God is not so good. Now you take a symbol, an idol or image, and then you put it in the temple of your God, which is greater, so that you know, people can see that this, your God has triumphed over the, the inferior God. Okay, so that was the practice back then as well. And so that's why the Philistines put the Ark of God in Dagon's temple, like a war trophy. It's a reminder of they are God's superiority. But, as it was mentioned just now, Dagon had fallen, okay, he was found the next day, fallen on his face before the Ark of God. Now, very interesting that it's recorded as Dagon falling, not just fallen, but fallen on his face, okay, because if it's just falling, that can mean defeat. If it's just falling, it can mean being slayed or killed or whatever. But falling on its face most likely would bring to mind uh, bowing down to the ground with the face touching the ground, known as going prostrate. Prostrate, right? Not prostate, right? <laughs> yeah, I think it's prostrate. Yeah. So when, when, you, when you prostrate yourself to somebody, uh, you, you bow down on the ground with your, your face touching the ground, and that's the lowest possible position that you can go as a sign of humility, reverence, and of course, worship. Okay? And so this is complete reverence of a greater power. It's worship. 
is bowing as low as you can possibly go. And so the fact that Dagon was fallen on his face before the Ark of God would have very obviously uh, brought to mind these sort of things to, to the Philistines, that why is our God bowing himself to the ground prostrate before this other God whom we have defeated, right? But that didn't just happen once. It happened again the next day. So it's not a coincidence, not an accident. And this time, Dagod's head and hands had broken off. Now, the Hebrew word for broken off or uh, for, for the head and the hands that had broken off, is the Hebrew word is literally cut off. Okay? And so in those days, it was common during war to cut off the head of an enemy, uh, usually a prominent enemy, a king or, or a general or whatever, to, to prove that that person is dead. Okay, you carry the head around and you show people the head. All right? You have killed that person. It was also common to cut off the hands to count the number of casualties in battle. And so after a, a, a battle is done and you know, thousands of people are dead, they go around, they cut off all the hands, they pile it, and then they see how big is the pile, you know, how many, how many people had, had been killed. Okay? And so on top of that, uh, other than these, these war, war uh, execution sort of uh, symbols, the head symbolized wisdom and also sovereignty, and hands always symbolized strength and power. And so God was sending a very clear message to the Philistines. Their God did not, Dagon did not just bow and worship God, okay, through, uh, who is symbolized by the Ark of the Covenant, but the Israelite God is greater he is wiser, he is more sovereign, he is stronger, he is more powerful because the Dagon, their God, had lost his wisdom and his strength and his power. Okay? On top of that, so that, that's just at the temple and what they had seen. Uh, on top of that, God also sent a plague upon the people of Ashdod. Okay? Just like he had sent plagues upon the Egyptians. And this was a plague of tumors, as the NIV translates. Uh, but tumors, probably not in the same sense of you know, the tumors that we associate with cancer today. Okay, when we hear tumor, instantly we think of cancer. Is it benign? You know, is it uh, cancerous? But back then, uh, these, these word, this word translated as tumor, probably some sort of hemorrhoids or... Um, since there are also rats involved, some scholars theorize it's some form of the bubonic plague, okay, the Black Death. Okay, but regardless, it was a, a, a plague of judgment. And the people of Ashdod recognized that God was behind this plague, and it was an act of judgment upon them and Dagon. So they recognized, they know, okay, this Israelite God is judging us and our God. And so this Israelite God, whom the Philistines thought was inferior to their God, was now in their city, clearly superior, so they sent it to another Philistine city. Okay, spare this city, let's send it to another city. So they sent it to another major Philistine city, which is Gath. And that city was stricken by the plague as well. And so they said, okay, okay, let's move it to another city. 
And so they moved it to yet another major Philistine city, Ekron. Now, something interesting to, to note, Dagon's head and hands had been cut off, right? And so without his hands, it symbolized his powerlessness. But if you look at 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 6, 7, 9, and 11, all those emphasize God's hand. It repeats many times. God's hand was heavy on the people. God's hand was severe. Uh, God's hand did this. God's hand did that. So this is very much opposite of the lifeless Dagon who had no power to do anything because his hands had been cut off or broken off. And so just like God did in Egypt, God is displaying his superiority over other gods. However, even though the Philistines clearly recognized God's superiority, they continued to cling to their God and they remained set against Israel. Because if you fast forward through um, ancient Near East history, the Philistines would remain Israel's enemies until finally they are swallowed up by Assyria and Babylon, okay, together with the surrounding nations of that time. And so there's a lesson here to be learned about repentance. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, there's a lesson here to be learned about repentance. The Philistines had clear evidence of the God of Israel's superiority over their own God. They knew it, they recognized it, they acknowledged it. Yet evidence does not always precede conviction. And conviction does not always precede repentance. Friends, today we have no shortage of evidence for God. Not just in the scriptures, but we have an abundance of libraries full of books. We have petabytes of videos and audio files and billions of people with personal testimonies all witnessing for God. And so if you live in 2022, you have plenty of evidence for God. Not just the question of the existence of God, which is a whole area of, of uh, academics, but also evidence of His good character and His mighty power and His deep personal love for all of us. And there's no greater evidence than what Jesus did on the cross to pay for our sins and suffer our punishment. And so we do not lack evidence. I wonder, friends, if God had been showing you how He is greater than your worries, your anxieties, your doubts, and your fears. Maybe He's been showing you how He's greater than a sinful pattern or an old trauma. And God has just been showing you evidence of His goodness and His love and His care for you. Whatever it is, I'd like to encourage you not to stop there. Don't just stop at seeing this evidence and seeing that God has showed you that He is good and saying, yes, okay, God, you are good. Allow God's revelation to convict you to confession, to praise, to thanksgiving, and then allow the Spirit's conviction to lead you to repentance, transformation, revival. Don't just stop at observing 
the evidence of what God has done or is doing around you. Respond to it. Let your life be changed by it. Let's spend some time reflecting and discussing this question. What's one area in your life where you need God to show you that He is greater? Why? And for the kids, what is something that you find difficult and how can God help you with it? Okay, let's spend two minutes. Okay, we come to our third point for today. And that is the impossibility of defeat and despair with God. Now, if you think back to 1 Samuel chapter 4, last week's passage, when the ark was first captured, 30,000 men were killed. Hophni, Phinehas, the, the priests, uh, Eli, the high priest, all dead. Phinehas' wife names her son Ichabod meaning glory, the glory has departed from Israel. It's all horrible, horrible stuff, okay? So, uh, Brother Giam Leung, he wore a dark-coloured shirt last week, right, if you remember, to symbolise the darkness, the air of depression surrounding that whole passage. It was a very, very low point in Israel's history. And so you might imagine some of the questions on the minds of the Israelites at that point. So you imagine, put yourself in their shoes. They had just lost the battle. 30,000 men had been killed. The symbol of God's presence, the Ark of the Covenant, has been captured. Priests are dead. High priests are dead. Uh, dark day. What are some of the questions that are going through your mind? Maybe things like, why did God allow this to happen? How could He allow this to happen? Has He abandoned us? 
how will we ever recover the ark? Now, these questions would remain unanswered for them. They would not know the answers. But today, as we go through this passage, we get to see them answered in God's Word. God has clearly not abandoned them because He does eventually... uh, He continues His relationship and His covenant with Israel. That's not the end of their story. Uh, He did not need them to recover the ark for Israel. He could do it all by Himself. In fact, if you read ahead to chapter 6, the Philistines put the ark on a cart and they send it back to Israelite territory all on its own. Okay, so God rescued himself in that sense. And one very possible answer to why he allowed all this to happen, to declare his power and victory even over the chief God of the surrounding nation. You see, God's power wasn't news to the Philistines. When the Philistines first hear of the ark being in the camp of the Israelites, their initial reaction was terror because of what they had already heard had happened to the Egyptians. Okay, they, the Israelites had already developed a reputation from the time of the Exodus. And in chapter 6, when they consult their own priests and diviners to figure out what to do with the ark, they're reminded of what God had done to the Israelites and they would, re- they would recommend for the ark to, to be returned to the Israelites. And so by this time, with all this in mind, by this time, the ark of God, uh, when, when the ark of God reaches the Philistine city of Ekron, God already had gained a reputation. Okay. So, not just a reputation from the surrounding nations because of what he had done in Egypt, that he's greater than their gods. Now, three out of five major Philistine cities had experienced God's power firsthand through the plagues and the panics. Okay? And two times because of this, all the rulers of the Philistines were called together to decide what to do about this ark, this god. And so, you can be sure that by the time the ark was returned to Israel, the Philistines, their surrounding areas, all the surrounding nations who have heard of the Israelites and their God, who was superior, more superior than all the other gods of the land. All because of the events of this chaos that happened in seven months. But I don't think that's the only reason for why God allowed the ark to be captured. One of the reasons, perhaps, but not the only one. You remember the state of Israel before all this had happened. Period of judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Downward spiral of spiritual decline to the point where the priesthood, you know, the, the people of Israel who were meant to be the holiest because they had been set apart to serve the Lord, even they were corrupt. Even they abused their position. So by the time we come to 1 Samuel chapter 4, where the, the ark of God is used as an instrument of war, it is a spiritual low for the people of Israel. The ark would remain in Philistine territory for seven months before returning to Israel, where eventually it will be moved to the city of Kiriath-Yarim for 20 years. David eventually brings the ark 
to Jerusalem after he becomes king of Israel. But the capture of the ark, this is a low point in Israel's spiritual history. But even though the Israelites had drifted far from God and his commands, even though they had broken his covenant again and again, he still considered them his people. He still wanted to bring them back to him. Friends, as human beings who are far from perfect and very limited in our knowledge and experience and, and perspective of things, we will often hit spiritual valleys where all we can see is spiritual defeat and spiritual despair. In fact, the Catholics have classified this, this intense experience of spiritual darkness as the dark night of the soul. And this dark night of the soul can last months or even years. In fact, Mother Teresa was one such person. She felt, she described feeling abandoned by God. And in one of her letters, she wrote how her, her constant smile, she's always smiling, right? Her smile was a big cloak which covers a multitude of pains. And so she went through a prolonged dark night of the soul. But I noticed something interesting when I was preparing this message. In terms of the, the outline of the whole book of 1 Samuel, I think I mentioned in my first sermon of the year, it spans the origins of Samuel all the way into the rise and fall of King Saul and eventually the rise of David, right? And so that, that is the, the main contents of 1 Samuel. But 1 Samuel chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6 does not really mention any of these three characters of Samuel, Saul, or David. And so if 1 Samuel was a movie with three protagonists, three main characters, Samuel, Saul, and David, then chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6 are when the camera cuts away to a totally different scene, you know, like one of those. Meanwhile, in another place, in a, you know, something is happening, the villain is doing this or whatever, you know, one of those scene changes before it eventually returns to the main character of that point, Samuel, in chapter 7. And in these cutaways to a different scene, chapter 2 and chapter 4 still have Israelites in the scene. Okay, and they still, the, the Israelites experience the abuses of Hophni and Phinehas. They witness the defeat and capture of the ark. So the people of Israel, who are also part of this movie of 1 Samuel, they would have seen what was going on. But chapter 5 and chapter 6, or at least you know, before the ark is returned to Israel in the second half of chapter 6, in those two chapters, the Israelites do not know what is going on. Samuel does not know what is going on. Saul and David haven't come into the picture yet. But the people of Israel did not know what happened in chapter 5 and chapter 6. Everything we know about the journey of the ark and God's victory over the Philistines and their God, Israel would not have known. It is seven long months until the ark is returned to Israel, and we don't know how long before God finally revealed fully what had happened 
in chapter 5 and chapter 6. My point is, from Israel's point of view, all they knew, all they can see is chapter 4, where defeat, they lost 30,000 men, Ark was captured, at least for seven months. They don't know what happened until suddenly the Ark turns up in, in uh, Israelite territory. Okay, so friends, we might have only one scene that we can see. If we put ourselves in that movie, let's say we're the Israelites, we might only be able to see up to a certain point this scene and this scene of chapter 4, where all it does is fill us with despair and it fills us with pain. But meanwhile, in a separate scene that we cannot see right now, God is turning around what seems to be certain defeat and despair. Of course, we cannot talk about victory in the face of defeat and despair without talking about Jesus. Now, we are in coming to the end of January, but December wasn't too far away. And so I'm sure you can still remember all the Christmas celebrations. Emmanuel, God is with us. He's the promised king, the Messiah. He has come to save the nation of Israel from their foreign oppressors. He will overthrow the government. That's what they thought. And, oh wait, he just got arrested. Oh no, he's getting tortured. Oh dear, he's executed. He's hanging on the cross. And now he's dead. How defeated and despairing would you have felt as one of Jesus' followers? Whether as part of the crowd or one of the 12 disciples. I wonder, or, or probably 11 disciples because Judas had hanged himself. Uh, I wonder how many were going through the dark night of the soul on Good Friday when all their hopes of the Messiah hung there on the cross, killed. But we know it doesn't end there. It ends in victory when Jesus rises again on Easter Sunday and sin and death is finally defeated. And so friends, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, whether you're in the spiritually high or low places or maybe you're even flat on your face at the bottom of a spiritual valley, let me just encourage you. God always has the final say. And with God, True defeat and despair is impossible. Personal defeat and despair in our own affairs of uh, our own desires and our, our own motives and all that, maybe. But God's agendas, God's purposes, God's kingdom, when we align ourselves to God and we follow Him and we seek Him first, true defeat and despair is impossible. It may seem that way at times, but as long as we are seeking Him and His purposes, He will bring the victory according to His ways and His timing. God is and always will remain victorious. Let's look at our final question for today. How do you usually react to defeat? And how can hoping in God's ultimate victory change that? And for the kids... What do you say to God when you feel sad and disappointed? Okay, two minutes to reflect and discuss.
In conclusion, I'd like you to know that God is and always will remain victorious whenever we align ourselves to His will we share in His victory. I'd like you to be ruthless in dealing with idolatry. Don't let something or someone else take God's rightful place in your life. And do hope in our God who is greater. Even if you can't see how, rest assured that God is always greater than your circumstances, your trials, your challenges, and anything else in this world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.